Okay, we're, we're going to be in chapter 10 today. And while I'm thinking about it, I will say we won't have Sunday school next week. Easter Sunday, uh, normally there's a lot going on with the main service. I think it gets a little longer with having the baptism and things. So uh, we won't be having Sunday school. So if you show up here at 9.30... Uh, you'll be here by yourself or with everybody else who missed this announcement. <laughs> okay, chapter 10. I think another pretty significant chapter, chapter entitled Self. And he opens with this statement, one of the most important factors in Christian growth is the Holy Spirit's revelation of the self-life to the believer. This is a significant part of your growth. It's been a significant part of my growth. You know, God showing us what the self-life is like. And he goes on to define and say, self is the fleshly, carnal life of nature. It's basically that old Adamic life. The life of the first Adam, dead in trespasses and sins. You know, uh, we came to Christ and we came to him as being nothing more than this old man. But we have a new, a new uh, nature now, that new creation life. But that old life is still there. I have, uh, uh, I guess, likened it in modern terms to having a computer with a very faulty operating system and you get a new operating system put in it. But you still continue to use the old operating system. You know, and that operating system is no better than it ever was. It's still just as flawed. And so, uh, you know, we gain a new life in Christ, but we still have that old life. And it is a self-life. Now, as I've pointed out, uh, a lot of modern translations translate old man and new man as old self and new self. I have a lot of problems with that because the new man is not a new self. You only have one self. Is who you are apart from Christ. Self implies independence. Self implies what you are apart from others, including apart from Christ. You know, the translators have gone along with society and trying to at times degenderize the Bible. And they think, you know, using the term man is, uh, you know, kind of perhaps offensive. So instead of saying old man and new man, we'll just make it the old self and the new self. I assure you, you only have one self. And a big part of Christian growth is you coming to see what yourself is like. And that is the painful part of the Christian journey. Because we really don't want to see what ourself is like. We want to think that, you know, oh, ourself isn't perfect. 
But, you know, if we just knocked a few sharp corners off of it and things and polished it up a little bit, it really wouldn't be that bad. And, you know, initially, when we first got saved, we were... We came to Christ as our Savior recognizing that our self-life was not good enough to get us into heaven. We realized that. That we fell short. But for most of us, I think most believers, you know, once we've had the guilt and penalty of our sin paid for, there is this underlying idea that, well, I may not be perfect, but I can, you know, surely I've got something I can offer God. And, you know, uh, with his help, uh, you know, we can, I can grow and I can change this life. And a big portion of, of Christian development is coming to realize I can't. I've been a Christian now for 65 years. And my self-life is no better today than the day I was saved. It's not. And the Lord you know, continues to show me that. But he says, you know, regarding, he says, self is the fleshly, carnal life of the first Adam, dead in trespasses and sins. That's Ephesians 2.1, Paul tells us that. Thoroughly corrupt before God, Galatians 5.19-21. through 21. There we have the works of the flesh. And you might read through those works of the flesh and say, well, there's a lot of those things I don't do. I suspect most of us have failed in the area of idolatry. <laughs> that there are things we put in the place of God in our lives. There are idols we worship. And whether or not we commit adultery or immorality, uh, we, we struggle at times in our hearts and minds. That is the flesh. That is the self-life. That is the life which according to Paul in Romans 7.18, in which there is no good thing in the sight of God. God does not look at our old self-life and say, well, it wasn't perfect, but it's really not horrible. You know, with a little patching up, it could be okay. No. God says that there is nothing good whatsoever in it. I was saying to Rick this morning, y'all, that this week I just spent some time in my time of the Lord in the early hours of the morning. And I'm not saying everybody should do this. It's just something the Lord led me to do, and it's real short. But I wrote out what I saw, what I've seen in my flesh for me. 
And one of the things the student used to say was it seemed to mean a lot to them that we would be transparent. So I guess I'm just being transparent here and just sharing some of this with you. Because we can tell people, I bet their flesh isn't as bad as mine. Well, that, the flesh is just the flesh and it's bad. I mean, really understand that. Maybe you do. Maybe you're going, man, I'm still understand that. But some of the things I wrote was, and this is about myself. When I'm walking in the flesh, when self has its way, uh, there's unsettled turmoil within, anxiousness, critical spirit, dissatisfied, sinful thoughts, self-centered, not believing and trusting God and His truth, senseless, not even sensible or purposeful in my thoughts. I'm just saying, and that's just a bare part of the list. Then I went on and then one of uh, what life is like walking in Christ. And I won't share that. But it's just been good for me to stop and think about this and what God rescues me from when I allow Him to be my arm and arm and I walk this way in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And see, we, we really aren't going to get to know who we are in Christ until we've come to the place of giving up on fixing the self-life. As long as we think it can be fixed, we're going to try. He said, you know, it goes on, he says, nowhere do spiritual principles mean more than here. Plato, with his know thyself, was more right than he knew, but he was only half right. Paul, with God's not I, but Christ, was all right, completely right. And so he says, for one to get beyond just knowing about the Lord Jesus, which is what a huge segment of Christians, that's uh, uh, about all a lot of Christians know, for one to get beyond just knowing about Jesus and to enter into a consistent, growing personal knowledge of and fellowship with him, one must first come to know oneself. Now he says introspection is not involved here. The Holy Spirit uses experiential revelation. You know, it's not that you're going to focus on yourself and you're going to come to know yourself. and they, No, the Holy Spirit's going to show you yourself. He is going to reveal it to you. And we'll see later in the chapter, he uses a, a huge number of things to reveal it to us. One of them, he, he'll point out, is our spouse. <laughs> in uh, the book, uh, Sacred Marriage, the author says, the most difficult thing about the first year of marriage is not what you learn about your spouse that you didn't know, it's but what you learn about yourself that you didn't know. He said, on your wedding day, your, uh, the Lord gave you a, pre a, a present of a full-length mirror called your spouse. 
And, you know, you can go in, the whole premise of the book is, you know, throughout history it's been thought that if you really want to live a holy life, you, you, you live a celibate life, a single life. He said, it's pretty easy for a single person to convince themselves that they're a lot more spiritual than they are. <laughs> he said, marriage reveals a lot. And... Uh, you know, the Lord uses you. You can go into marriage and you think, I'm a pretty selfless person. First year of marriage, you find out you aren't quite as selfless as you thought you were. You can think, I'm pretty patient. First year of marriage, you find out you probably aren't quite as patient as you thought you were. And a lot of other things. And then the Lord throws in children. <laughs> And they teach you even more about yourself <laughs> that, that you didn't know. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself a little, but it, uh, or get ahead of the chapter a little. But just to say, God uses all sorts of things to show us what the self-life is like. Why? So that we are pushed more and more to come to know Christ as our life. He says, first the believer learns, not I. Then he, he learns, but Christ. You know, there's an order to it. As long as I keep thinking, I can patch up my life and make it acceptable to God, I will keep trying to do so. And I can spend a lifetime doing that. Yeah. And there's no satisfaction there. No, there's no satisfaction and we'll never be successful. And then he, he just draws upon a number of passages here. He draws upon John twelve twenty four, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now Christ uh, makes that statement as he is preparing to die. But that same principle holds true in our lives. Until there is an element of death, that death to ourself, we're never going to see life coming forth from, from our relationship with Christ. Then in 2 Corinthians uh, 2, four, uh, uh, cha uh, chapter 4, verse 11, I mean, um, you know, Christ, I mean, Paul talks about always being delivered unto death. Then that li the life also of Jesus might be made manifest. There is this death element of coming to realize what, what the self-life is like. So that ultimately the life of Christ can be formed in us. He says all resurrection life springs out of death. Why? Else it would not be resurrection life. His resurrection life. We are to yield ourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead. Romans 
And again, Romans 6, we've looked at that chapter uh, some uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, it is that very critical chapter on the issue of seeing ourselves as having died to Christ, what, who we once were, and being alive to him now in the realm of new life. Now, this next paragraph, to some extent, uh, draws back on some of the things we looked at in the previous chapter. Because he says, for some years now, the evangelistic scene has been dominated by a conversation known as commitment. Which often, said to say, amounts to a little more than a spiritual miscarriage. When there's a bit of life, it usually blooms overnight into full bloom and soon becomes heavy with the fruit of, of dynamic, radiant personality coupled with busy, rushing service. The tragedy of this sort of thing is that self is at home and thrives in the glow of it all. And is rarely found out for what it really is. All is indiscriminate hearts and flowers. You know, there is, you know, this pressure at times put on, on new believers, you know, to, to commit themselves to Christ. We talked some about this in the previous chapter with the issue of consecration. And all too often, what believers are committing to Christ is their old Adamic life. I am going to go and I am going to live my life for, for him. You see this in a lot of modern Christian music. If you took I out of a lot of, of a modern Christian music, there wouldn't be much left. There's all this about what I am going to do. I is not going to do nothing of any real value for the Lord. You know, it's about Him. It's about Him bringing us to that place where we realize with Paul, not I. It's not about me, Lord. It's about you. It's about you working in me. It's about you working through me. It's about you accomplishing what only you can accomplish. You know, where he talks about commitment here and I know there'll probably be some who disagree with me on this and that's okay but I really think this is why a lot of times the Lord does not use us so much in our areas of natural talents as he uses us in other areas Because self, you know, takes such pride in its own talents. 
And God uses us in places of utter and complete dependence upon him. God has not used me in the areas that I see as my natural talents. Oh, I mean, he's let me use them along the way. But he hasn't really used me in those areas the most. Me being up here is is not a natural talent for me. This is an area where I have to depend on the Lord. This does not just come naturally to me. When we were trying to determine what mission field the Lord would have us serve on, and we got it narrowed down to Greater Europe Mission, and they offered us two opportunities. One was to serve at a Christian camp where they were doing a lot of construction and they needed somebody to kind of oversee construction. And the other was in Ireland where they needed somebody to come along uh, with uh, the church planning team. And when it came down to it, we opted for Ireland because working with my hands is something that comes very natural to me. And I saw that going to, to this camp in Spain could be something that I would do myself. And I saw that Ireland would require me to be, depend on the Lord. And I think it was the right choice. Now the Lord graciously let me use a lot of my skills in Ireland. Man, I did a lot of helping remodel and do all sorts of things. And I enjoyed it. But that wasn't where my primary ministry was. And that choice was made because at least the Lord had taught me enough about self along the way that I didn't want to choose a ministry that could be about my abilities rather than a ministry that was going to be about his abilities. Jonelle will tell you, I I resisted heavily ever teaching. I never wanted to teach. And in our early days of ministry, I, I fought against it. But the Lord wouldn't let me rest. <laughs> and the Lord brought me into it. And I learned to enjoy it the day I really came to realize this is his work, not mine. It's about him. Jonelle, I'll tell you, oftentimes before I speak, I pray, Lord, I just want to be a bush this morning. I just want you to give me your words to speak. Don't let me speak one single word that isn't from you. I have nothing, nothing, nothing to offer anybody. But you have the riches of your grace. But 
It's been a painful journey learning what my self-life is like. And there are still painful times when he shows me something else about it. Something else I haven't seen or haven't wanted to see. But every time he's taught me something about myself, he's also gone on to show me what I have in Christ. And what he can do as I depend on him. And as we saw in the previous chapter, God isn't wanting us to consecrate or commit or whatever our old Adamic life to him. He's wanting us to commit to him ourselves and that new life that belongs to to Christ. To see myself in that light. Now he goes on. He says, the healthy new birth is based on the deep conviction of sin and repentance toward God. Uh, no, that, uh, yeah, the healthy new birth based on uh, the deep conviction of sin and repentance toward God starts out clear and strong with love and devotion to the Savior. So he says, you know, we start out well. We have this deep conviction of sin. There is repentance toward God. And, and again, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what repentance is. Repentance is a change of mind, uh, which alters the, our response. We have a change of mind concerning God. We come to see, you know, that he is the one who has got to rescue us. And we start out, you know, we've got this strong love for Christ, for uh, him saving us. We have a devotion to him. But he says here, but before long there comes the sickening realization of an element within that pulls us back to self-centeredness, to the world, to the rule of law, to sin. He says, as we're going along in our Christian life, And generally it's not real far down the road. We come to realize there is something that's pulling us back. Back to the self-life. Back, you know, to self-centeredness. To back to the world. And what it has to offer. Back to a law mentality. Back to sin. That pull. Again, you'll see this. You'll see somebody get saved, and and if they're a well-known personality, you know, initially they'll be talking about Christ and just all that's happened. And the next thing you know, you see that them going back down into the old way. Why? Because. Having the guilt and penalty of your sin canceled didn't change the old Adamic life. It didn't change it one iota. And that salvation 
our main understanding was that we needed to be saved from the guilt and penalty of sin. But we didn't grasp at that point. We needed more than that. We need to be saved from ourselves and our propensity for sin. And so, you know, we we receive the uh, you know the uh, canceling of our sin debt with gratitude. But we don't grasp we need so much more. And that's why God's got to take us down this journey of showing us what we are apart from Him. He says, this learning by heartbreaking experience of the utter sinfulness and reigning power of the self in the, in the everyday Christian life is the means by, whereby we come to know the Lord Jesus beyond the birth phase as our Savior onto the growth phase as Lord and life. Christ is our Savior, but He wants to be so much more. He wants to be our life. He says, no believer, and that's a pretty strong statement, but I think it's accurate. No believer will truly come to know the Lord Jesus as his life. Until he knows by experience the deadly self-life deep within for what it is. Until you really know what this old Adamic life is like. You're never going to really come to know Christ as your life. Why? Because you'll keep trying to fix it. Your prayers will be, Lord, you know... Help me conquer this. Help me, you know, be successful over that. Help me have victory over sin. And it's all about me. He wants you to come to see what you are like. And then he'll begin to show you what you have in Christ. You know, an interesting passage in the Old Testament, and the one the Lord used in my life at one point, is where Jacob is wrestling with God. And in the midst of that, God asks him an interesting question. He asks him what his name is. You know, Jacob says, is wrestling with God and says, God, bless me. And God says, who are you? What is your name? Now, why? Why? Because if you think back in Genesis, the last time Jacob had sought 
the Lord's blessing, it had been through his father. And when his father asked him who he was, he said, I am Esau. (laughs) Jacob had thought that that God couldn't bless him, that to get the blessing, he had to be somebody else. And Jacob's wrestling with God, and God says, who are you? And Jacob says, I am Jacob. I am the cheat. That's what his name meant. The deceiver. I am Jacob. And that's when God told him he he would bless him. And he blessed him with a limp that was with him the rest of his life. To remind him what it took. See what happened as Jacob wrestled with God that night. Was simply a, a physical manifestation of what had been going on for the previous 20 years. He'd been wrestling with God for 20 years. Unwilling to acknowledge who he was. And only when he acknowledged who he was, then God blessed him. And God said, I have a new name for you. Israel. It's interesting. <laughs> Jacob asked God who, what his name is. And God didn't give it to him. Why? Because God had always been honest with him. God had always shown Jacob who he was. God had never been deceitful. To Jacob, Jacob was the one who would not recognize who he was and acknowledge it and realize that that was the first step towards God making him into a new man. And we resist God. And at times we we think we've got to be This or we've got to be that before God can take and really use us. And what he wants us to do is say, this is who I am, God. I am this broken person who cannot be fixed. And I want the new life you have for me. That life that is in Christ Jesus. I mean, it took Jacob a long time to acknowledge who he was. And even after that, he struggled with it. Unlike Abraham, Jacob had an ongoing struggle. His name, Israel, means God-fighter. He was constantly struggling. But his battle with God brought about the changes that we're needed and it's our battle at times with God over who we are apart from him that brings us to the place where he can begin showing us who we are and what we have in Christ he says at a spiritual life conference many years ago Dr. C.I. Schofield said Not everyone by any means has had the experience of the seventh of Romans. That agony of conflict, of the desire to do what we cannot do, of longing to do the right we we find we cannot do. 
He says, it is a great blessing when a person gets into the seventh of Romans and begins to realize the awful conflict of its struggle and defeat. Because the first step toward getting out of the struggle of the seventh chapter and into the victory of the eighth is to get into the seventh. And this next statement, I think, is pretty significant. Of all the needy classes of people, the neediest of this earth are not those who are having heartbreaking, agonizing struggle for victory, but those who are having no struggle at all, and no victory, and who do not know it. And who are satisfied and jogging along in a pitiable absence of almost all the possessions that belong to them in Christ. He says the most needy class of people aren't those who are struggling for victory and, and in agony over this struggle. He said they are not the most... Uh, Needy. He says it's the ones who aren't having the struggle who don't know what they're missing out on. Rick. Yeah. And what about the people who um, are having no struggle and lots of victory? <laughs> Is that just seemingly uh, It's just seemingly victory. Yeah, they think they're having victory. Yeah. Yeah, they play the game well. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes we see them as having victory too. Yeah, yeah. It, they can put on the outward appearance. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, people who, again, especially those who live under a legalistic mindset, you, you generally end up with two groups. One is those who are, are able to do a good job of putting on external appearances, like the Pharisees. Which means they have to learn to lie. Yeah, they have to learn to lie to themselves as well as others. Yeah, and the other class of people are the ones who just totally give up in despair and say, I cannot do it. Uh, uh, you know, I... I said before, uh, we were in a church one time and the pastor used to use this statement, fake it till you make it. I used to cringe because people who fake it well never make it. Uh, they never make it. Because they convince themselves and others that they're being successful. Now, generally, uh, they don't have a lot of peace in their heart. Again, all we can see are the externals. And like you say, they look they look like they aren't having a struggle. They look like they're having victory. And they're so hard to reach. Oh, yeah. Well, who, who were the hardest ones for Christ to get through? It was the Pharisees. And Paul was a Pharisee, but it took some pretty extreme measures <laughs> to bring Paul around. Uh, you know, it took a lot to get Paul's attention. It wasn't the message of Stephen. He stood by and heard the message of Stephen and, and gave his, his approval to, uh, uh, to uh, their stoning of him. It wasn't that that got through to Paul. It was Christ had to really uh, 
made him in a blinding light, had to leave him blind for three days. Uh, He had to do a number of things to even get Paul's attention. You know, people used to say to dad, you know, how can you work with those substance abusers? Dad used to say, they're far easier than a lot of people in church to work with. Because they know they've got a problem. There's a lot of people in the church that don't have a clue. They don't have a clue what they're missing out on. They're going along, they're playing the game real well. Particularly on Sunday morning. Um... They don't always do so well out in the world, but, uh, and I know that from when, when I've been in construction at times, I've, I've heard workers talking about uh, Christian uh, em- employers that uh, they've worked for, and a lot of the things that went on, which were not godly things, and yet on Sunday mornings, they looked great in church. They played the game well. But God doesn't want us to play the game well. He wants us to become all that we have the potential to be in Christ. Now we're out of time. We'll have to pick up on this in two weeks. But uh, again, this is a really significant thing. And I can look back at my own life and see how much of the, the journey has been God revealing self-life for what it is. Hasn't been enjoyable, <laughs> but it's been necessary. And he's also constantly showing me who I am and what I have in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you now that as ugly as the self-life is, that we can leave it at the cross and embrace something entirely new. Lord, we thank you for the new life we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the assurance that one day we will be like him in character. That day will come when we look on him and see him as he is. But Lord, may we come to uh, more closely approach that even now. And Lord, may we give up on trying to fix the self-life and learn to embrace the new life we have in him. Lord, we pray that in the week ahead that you would teach us what you would have us to learn about ourselves, but Lord, that you would also open our eyes to what we need to see about Christ. In whose precious name we come to you now. Amen.